Jovovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Today's subject is the Civil War Underwater. If you've never heard of the CSS Hunley, you're listening to the wrong show and have clicked here by accident. But for those of you who have, today we're going a step further to talk with the man who has found a different Civil War submarine. He's James Delgado, Executive Director of the Vancouver Maritime Museum and host of television's The Sea Hunters. And we'll talk to him today on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Remember when you laughed during a business conference? You felt more energized, more alert, and more receptive to the message being delivered. Hi, I'm Russ Dahlnack, and I make people laugh. And as a professional humorous speaker, I open up a morning conference session with a laugh or close off the day with a funny recap. It's, it's just a one-of-a-kind experience. Visit RussIsFunny.com right now. Get an audience into it. You know, if they're laughing, it's paying big dividends. They're more relaxed. They're more creative. And if nothing else, a humorous speaker leaves each and every one of them with with a smile on their face. You need comedy. Custom, clean, clever comedy. Otherwise, your audience might just doze off. <laughs> just imagine, if you had to listen to hours of serious commentary without a break, come on, pack some upbeat energy into your next event. Humor works. Find me, Russ Dahlnack, at RussIsFunny.com because, well, Russ's chubby.com was taken. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, the third floor of Brewster Building, Office A307, with narrow windows guarded by projecting concrete walls as if a medieval fortress from which I could shoot arrows at the the uh, band, marching band practice field across the street, although I would not want to. I enjoy hearing the students practice. And, yes, legally not responsible, uh, the university that is, is not responsible for what I'm saying. I do not speak for them. I'm just using their telephone. I want to start uh, this week by thanking the many listeners who have contributed donations to help keep up the book budget of the show so that we can uh, get books and I can read them and know what I'm talking about when authors come on. I particularly want to thank Ricky Hildebrandt, Massachusetts, for a very generous donation. Uh, enjoyed hearing from a listener in Franklin, Massachusetts, the town that came up in our last conversation with uh, Tom Brown. Uh, people uh, who've lived there have been in touch with me. That was very interesting. 
and a quick message to the uh, lawyer at Richard Nixon's old law firm in California who sent me an interesting email. Your spam blocker is killing all my replies. Uh, you are protected in a sort of Nixon White House fortress mentality uh, place where I cannot communicate with you. So uh, please don't think I was being rude and not answering. It just isn't. It just keeps bouncing back. So enough of the uh, administrative duties taken care of. Today we have a subject uh, that is relative, uh, relatively obscure and, and new to me, certainly. We're going to talk about submarines in the Civil War. And our guest is James P. Delgado, the executive director of the Vancouver Maritime Museum. James, are you there? I am, Jerry. Good morning. Good morning. Um, do you go by James, Jim, uh, Hair Doctor? Uh, what? what uh, uh, it's been Jim all my life. That, that's great. And call me Jerry, please. Only, only my mother would call me Gerald, and only if I'm in trouble. Um, well, I appreciate you calling in. I've been uh, uh, emailing with your assistant uh, back at your your base for for much of the week, and I understand you were called to a sudden consultation in Los Angeles today. Is that right? Yeah, uh, we're in the middle of filming something for uh, the Discovery Channel, and it was a last minute thing, and so I stepped off the set for a while to to take this call because it's an important subject and near and dear to my heart. I'm glad you're able to do that. I, I definitely appreciate it. Now. The, tell me about uh, about your background. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background. You're, uh, I pointed out you're director of the Vancouver Maritime Museum, but you've been engaged in a, a wide range of, of underwater activities. In fact, yeah, let me no, start I, by asking you, uh, uh, I understand you, you got some of your training here at East Carolina. I did indeed. Uh, my, uh, my master's degree was in the maritime program at East Carolina, and then... Uh, Subsequently, went on to the Ph.D. program at Simon Fraser University out in uh, in Canada, which is where I've been living now for the last 15 years. I uh, started in my career as an archaeologist and uh, as a historian working for the U.S. National Park Service, working out in California. One of my earliest jobs uh, was, of course, dealing with sites associated with the California Gold Rush, but also excavating a Civil War gun battery that had been built by the Union to protect San Francisco Bay from the onslaughts of Confederate raiders, particularly the Shenandoah. And that gave me an opportunity, uh, working on that project, to meet Ed Bars, uh, chief historian of the National Park Service and a great Civil War historian. It also gave me a chance, uh, working more with ships, to learn more about what the Park Service was doing in partnership with others uh, with Civil War wrecks. And it also introduced me to Bill Still and Gordon Watts out there at East Carolina, and uh, ultimately into a career that now, uh, decades on, has me working on wrecks all over the world, um, some of them from the Civil War, and in particular, the wreck that we're going to talk about today. Um, in addition to my academic career, I've had a wonderful opportunity to reach out to the public, believe in public outreach rather strongly, and so uh, not only as a museum director, but for the last five years as host of Clive Cussler's The Sea Hunters for National Geographic International, had some wonderful opportunities not just to see some great things and dive on some wrecks and to participate in archaeology, but to share that with a worldwide television audience of some 42 million. So it doesn't get any better than that, you know, to have the opportunity to do this, to share it, and uh, to get feedback from the public. I am stepping down as director of the Maritime Museum, though. I'm joining the Institute of Nautical Archaeology and College Station, Texas, as their executive director in just a few months 
to continue work on shipwrecks around the globe. Wow, well, that's a, a, a full plate there. The uh, with, with 42 million, you're only about 41.9 million ahead of Civil War talk radio. <laughs> Excellent. We're, we're catching up uh, quickly. But I certainly agree with you about uh, the point about outreach. It's important, I think, for uh, anyone doing historical work to keep in mind uh, that if it doesn't reach an audience, it's really not uh, entirely valuable in most cases. I'm fascinated by this, this world of underwater archaeology, of wrecks. Until I came to East Carolina, I was unfamiliar with how much of it is going on. Uh, East Carolina is one of the few schools that has a maritime program of, of the size that it does. And I keep seeing people around the country who had some connection to it. And what really impresses me is the graduates tend to get jobs and actually have something to do, which many uh, above-water history programs can't necessarily claim for their graduates. Well, indeed, back in my time, and I was at East Carolina 21 years ago, um, they already had an impressive record with getting people jobs. I was fortunate in that I had a job already, took a leave of absence to go to ECU, and then uh, went back into the ranks of the Park Service and immediately uh, to work on the USS Monitor Project with the Park Service and NOAA. But um, East Carolina's program has put graduates in to museums, into government programs, uh, you name it. Uh, they, they do have a good record. And a number of the wrecks they've worked on have also been Civil War wrecks, from gunboats in the Tar River to blockade runners in uh, not only North Carolina and South Carolina, but also um, in Bermuda, to, of course, uh, some, some very famous projects like Gordon Watts' ongoing relationship, not just with Monitor, but with CSS Alabama. So there's, there's definitely a lot going on uh, branching out here from, from Greenville. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, uh, the Sea Hunters, and I will confess, without trying to sound like a TV snob, that I have not watched the program. Uh, not that I'm you know, too academic to watch TV. I was just watching uh, Donald Trump and The uh, Apprentice, probably, or something at the same time. But well, yes, it, well, there's an awful lot of TV out there. Uh, there is. I, I do remember Sea Hunt with Lloyd Bridges from my youth. Uh, yes. Do you remember that show? Oh, absolutely. And I think, like most anybody in my profession, that show and and Jacques Cousteau, uh, that all played an incredible role in helping us decide what we wanted to do. In my case as well, it was reading National Geographic magazine and learning about the scientific work of George Bass and his colleagues in the Mediterranean, particularly off the coast of Turkey, and accounts like that 1973 discovery of the Monitor. Whenever something's found and comes up out of the ocean, uh, it's a powerful reminder, not just of, of history and of the things that come out of the ocean, but the people stories behind them. And so, no, it was all an inspiration. And that, I guess, is why I I'm, have been committed to an ongoing relationship with television, because it's to those folks who do watch it and do choose to pick that up on the channel as opposed to The Apprentice or Dog the Bounty Hunter or Monster Garage or, or Antiques Roadshow. I mean, that's the fun of it. It's, uh, you do reach a different audience, and thanks to reruns, if they don't catch it the first time, they'll catch it later. Uh, and that's true. I, I, let me ask, do you actually watch other underwater shows? And I ask that because whenever there's a new show about Abraham Lincoln, uh, the History Channel or Discovery or A&E has a Lincoln show. Everyone asks me, did you see the latest Lincoln show? And usually my thought is, you know, I've been doing this eight hours, ten hours today. I'm not going home to watch more Lincoln. Uh, do, do you I, I, watch, I watch 
from time to time. It all depends. If it's a wreck that I've been on already, I'm always interested in seeing what they've seen. Um, if it's something I haven't seen, no, by all means, I like to watch it. Um, that being said, I'm not a big TV watcher. Um, for the most part, uh, I'm a reader. Uh, well, but that doesn't mean I don't support television. One question I want to ask you later uh, is, is about good things to read on this topic, because I, I feel woefully underinformed on the topic of Civil War uh, marine archaeology and submarines in particular. But let's get on to that. I mentioned in the introduction that uh, pretty much anybody listening to this knows about the Hunley and knows that it has been uh, recovered and a little bit about the background of what people generally have regarded as, as the world's first operational or successful uh, submarine. But you're here to tell us that there, there's more to the Civil War submarine story than just the Hunley. Well, absolutely, and I wouldn't be the first. Uh, Mark Reagan, who's written, I think, one of the best books on Hunley, also did the book that is the Bible on Civil War submarines. And uh, his account, which is now going to be um, augmented in a more illustrated version, um, really does speak powerfully to the ongoing role of submarines. And I think it's important to recollect that as you and your listeners well know, the Civil War was a time of incredible technological innovation. It's a time when all sorts of inventions are coming into the forefront. Uh, it is the industrial age, the age of iron. It is the age of the rifled gun, of more powerful steamers and of screw propellers and of early steel, telegraph balloons, daguerreotypes, all of that. And in the midst of that, infernal devices beneath the water, be they torpedoes, or as they were called, we could now call them mines, or submarines. The idea of submarines, of course, dated back to before the war, but like all conflicts, it would be the, the Civil War that spurs uh, the adoption of that technology. Hunley was one of several Civil War submarines built both by the Confederate and the Union sides, but the submarine in particular that I've been interested in is a submarine built by an incredible German-American engineer and inventor living in New York City who, before the war, had been involved in undersea blasting, uh, particularly trying to clear the East River for navigation, but with a parallel career in iron manufacture. Uh, he'd patented a machine for bending flanges in iron and had actually constructed a cast iron fire watch tower in uh, New York City in 1855 that still stands as a landmark in Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem, and his name was Julius Kroll. Kroll, working in the rivers, uh, had encountered an inventor named Van Buren Ryerson who created a diving bell that he called the Submarine Explorer. This diving bell, operating under pressure, would drop to the bottom of the river. They could drill holes, set charges, come to the surface, and, and clear rocks. Kroll offered the sub to the U.S. Navy in 1854 during the Paraguay um, intervention when the Paraguayans uh, fired on a U.S. Navy ship, killed a sailor, the United States asked for reparations. They weren't forthcoming, so we sent a fleet down there, including Kroll and the submarine explorer, to clear obstructions from the riverbed. Uh, the Paraguayans, of course, apologized before there were any gunshots, so Kroll returned home. But it, I think it gave him a taste, not only for uh, what his sub could do uh, for river clearance, but also what it could do with a powerful patron like the United States Navy. So when war broke out, he offered Im immediately his services and to build a submarine for the Navy, but it wasn't taken up. Instead, uh, Kroll was brought in by a good friend, Navy Secretary Gideon Wells, to work in mine clearance 
and obstruction clearance on the James River, and then ultimately to join David Dixon Porter at the mouth of the Mississippi as the United States Navy was ready to implement that part of the Anaconda Plan by going past uh, the forts at the mouth and to, uh, to strike at New Orleans. Those forts were blocked, of course, by submerged obstructions and by hulks chained across the river. Kroll and a Navy officer rode out in the middle of the night to set charges to clear those, but unfortunately got into an argument as to how to do the job, were discovered and fired upon and left before they could complete the task. The next morning, when Farragut decided to run the gauntlet, it was an incomplete opening, and so the Navy took a bit of a mauling. It left uh, Farragut with a lasting disdain for Julius Kroll, but Porter, a friend of, of Kroll's, decided that it was not the, the engineer's fault and kept him with him. Kroll remained with the Navy up through the fall of Vicksburg, but then came down with malaria, and uh, his commission as a volunteer acting lieutenant was revoked, and he went home to Washington, D.C., and then to New York to convalesce. But he never forgot his initial interest and uh, the need for a submarine, right that uh, he saw what was happening in the rivers, saw that mines and other obstructions were creating problems, and he noted with some interest the success of Hunley and felt that what needed to happen... Uh, with a quick question here. The, now, what Kroll has invented invented at this point was an actual submarine vessel or just a diving bell that went straight down to the bottom? At this stage, he just has a diving bell that goes to the bottom, but he okay. wants to develop a submarine. Okay. He asks the Navy for money to do it. They won't, so he decides to go to private backers. His war is over in terms of serving in the Navy, but he will go on to do something for them. So in 1864, he convinces a group of backers to give him the money in New York to form the Pacific Pearl Company. If they can't sell the sub to the Navy, they'll go down to Panama and use the sub to dive for pearls. What he develops is a craft that is a diving bell in a way, but capable of being propelled and moving on the bottom. It is an honest-to-goodness submarine, and as it turns out, Kroll will develop the world's first deep-diving and successful um, deep-diving submarine. We're going to take a, a short break here as the music comes up to uh, tell us to do just that and come back in a minute, and we're going to find out more about this this remarkable submarine other than the Huntley, this Union submarine from 1864. Our guest today is James Delgado, discoverer of the wreck of this submarine. We'll come back and find more about where it is and what it was when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 